right, brothers and sisters, let's take out our Bibles together. If you will, open with me to the book of Mark once again. Today we are in Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Mark 9, verses 1 through 13 today. Those who know Jesus and follow him are always longing to see his glory. It's one of the marks of people who truly know the Lord. They truly follow him. They are always longing to see his glory. Our lives should be characterized by that wonderful request, that wonderful prayer of Moses on Mount Sinai when he said to God, please show me your glory. Now, when we say that, we mean it from the, the eyes of our hearts. We want to see it with the eyes of our hearts. It's not a physical sight. But there was a moment in Jesus' ministry when he revealed his glory to the physical sight of three of his disciples. And that moment is what we come to in the book of Mark this morning. Let's read our text together. It's Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. This is God's word. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. I want to begin today with you with verse 1 and briefly make a comment on this verse that can sometimes confuse many Bible students and many people who read it. When Jesus said, To the crowd that was with him, this is a different setting than verse 2. To the crowd that was with him, the the same crowd and the same disciples that he was speaking to back at the end of chapter 8. He says to them, truly I say to you, some here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. There is a debate as to what Jesus meant here. He doesn't fully explain himself. 
Clearly, he did not mean that some who were alive then would stay alive until the return of Christ. If you start to think of it that way, you'll just think that Jesus was mistaken or there's, there's a problem with God's word. There's not. He was never mistaken. Some think he was talking about Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, when the disciples were in Jerusalem and so many believers were in Jerusalem from all kinds of nations, from speaking all kinds of different languages and tongues of fire, if you will, if you remember, descended upon the, the disciples, and they started to speak in languages that they had not known or studied, proclaiming the gospel to all who were there. The, the kingdom of God came with power there, and there were many that Jesus was speaking to who experienced that day. But there are others who think that this comes right before verses 2 through 13 because the transfiguration is what he is speaking to. And I think there's a lot of uh, evidence for that. There's a, a good reason to believe that. Because in here, math, or in, in the, the Gospel of Mark, but also in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, this same statement in all three of those comes right before this transfiguration account. And so what Jesus could have been meaning there was, Peter, James, and John are here with me. And they, they will see here in just a little while, here in a week's time, they will see the kingdom of God come with power. Whatever it meant, it's an amazing scene. And I want to look at it, especially verses 2 through 13, with you here in three different parts. We begin with verses 2 through 6, where we see the display of Jesus' glory. The display of his glory. Notice how Jesus took with him his three best friends. Jesus took with him his three best friends, Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. If you pay attention to the Gospels as you read through in Jesus' ministry, you'll understand Jesus has 12 disciples. 12 disciples that he is constantly training up and they are with him for three years and he, he teaches them so much. But he has three that, that we call his inner three. Three that are closer than all the others. Earlier in the book of Mark, it was Peter, James, and John alone that he allowed to come with him as he entered the house to heal Jairus' daughter, to raise her from the dead. It was only Peter, James, and John. He'll bring them with him as he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he goes a little bit further on to pray. And only Peter, James, and John can come close enough to him where he's praying. It's his inner three. And I believe these are his best friends. Peter, James, and John. He was closer to those three men than he was to anyone else. We, we're so thankful for the humanity of Jesus that, that shows us that it's okay to be human it's okay to have best friends. It's okay to have some people that you are closer to than others. Jesus did as well, Peter, James, and John. And they are the three that get the, the, the amazing privilege of coming up on this mountain and seeing the transfiguration. He'll later tell them, this is not meant for you to share. This is something for you to keep to yourselves until I rise from the dead. It's just for you for, for these moments. Now, I want you to see as Jesus is transfigured before them what Peter says in verse 5. Peter says, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. And then he says, let us make three tents for you. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And then verse 6 says, he didn't know what to say. They were terrified. 
Now, it's a good rule of thumb, it's a good lesson in life that when you don't know what to say, don't say anything. Just keep your mouth closed. I'm, I'm so thankful for Peter because growing up, I was the guy who, when I didn't know what to say, I spoke. And oftentimes I said something that was embarrassing. And I can remember all kinds of things like that, all kinds of shameful moments. Peter has one here. This is absolutely classic Peter. You can just see it, or at least I can, imagine them being there, Peter saying this ridiculous thing. I mean, it's ridiculous. I think we're meant to laugh at this. Can we make three tents for you, Jesus? And, and James just going, dude, shut up, right? What are you talking about? Just be quiet right now. This is not a time to, to speak. Peter sticks his foot in his mouth so many times, and this is one of them. I, I, I think we talked about... Uh, it was two weeks ago, as Peter is, is the one who's probably giving Mark most of his information for his gospel, because Mark was not one of the 12 apostles with Jesus all the time. And so Peter actually probably encouraged Mark to write this down. Mark, you, put, you need to put this in your gospel. I, I had no clue what I was talking about. I didn't know what to say, and I, I foolishly opened my mouth, and Mark writes it for us to have. We're so thankful for that. But Notice as Jesus is transfigured before them what happens. Verse 4, there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. So Jesus transfigured in glory and all of a sudden Elijah and Moses are there. And apparently even though Peter, James, and John have never met Moses and Elijah and, and don't know what they look like, they've never seen them. They recognize them. Maybe it was because Jesus is, is talking and they can hear him saying, oh, hello, Moses, hello, Elijah. But it's Moses and Elijah with him. These men from so many hundreds, perhaps thousands of years before. What's going on here? Well, together, Moses and Elijah represent the Old Testament, the Old Covenant that is eclipsed by the glory of Jesus. The glory of Jesus eclipses that of the Old Covenant. Moses here represents the law, and Elijah represents the prophets. Have you ever read through the New Testament and seen how sometimes they'll talk about the Old Testament scriptures by saying the law and the prophets? The law and the prophets? Well, here's the, the most prominent figure in all of the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, Moses, that we believe actually wrote those books. And here's probably the most prominent figure of all of the time of the prophets, Elijah himself. And so they, they represent together the law and the prophets, which was a way of referring to all of the Old Testament scriptures and all of the Old Covenant. And so what we're seeing here is that, that Jesus did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, as he says in the book of Matthew chapter 5. Jesus did not come to start teaching that, that the Old Covenant was wrong, that the, the law and the prophets were wrong in any way. No, it was still God's word, but he came to fulfill them. All of the Old Testament points forward to its proper fulfillment in Jesus. All of the, the sacrifices, all of the festivals, all of the cleanliness laws find their fulfillment in Jesus. They all existed for a temporary time until the fullness of time had come. Until Jesus himself had come. Until he introduced the way to God that would extend all the way until his return, the last age of this earth. That's what we're seeing here as Jesus is speaking with Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah are, are, are paying homage to Jesus, and that they're, they're at peace with him, and Jesus' glory eclipses the old covenant. 
Romans 3.21 says, this is Paul writing in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, there's that phrase, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And so the radiance of Jesus' glory eclipses the old covenant. We also see here, in Jesus' being glorified in this way, we see a preview of coming attractions. A preview of coming attractions. For almost all his life, Jesus' glory was veiled. It was hidden. Here in just a few months, we're going to enter into the Christmas season and we'll start to sing Christmas hymns, Christmas carols. And one of those, we will sing, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. It was veiled. His glory was veiled or hidden when he came the first time. For almost all of his life, it was veiled or hidden, but not here. Here, in this moment, the curtain was pulled back. Here we see a hint of what Jesus will be like when he returns a second time. Brothers and sisters, understand this. When Jesus came the first time, he came humbly. He came in lowly circumstances. He came as a servant. When he comes the second time, it will not be in that manner. When he comes the second time, it will be in the fullness of his glory. And all eyes will see him. And there will be no doubt who he is. There will be no doubt who is in charge. There will be no doubt who is the most glorious being in the entire universe on that day. There will be absolutely no doubt, even from those who have doubted, even from those who have denied their entire lives. He will leave no doubt. He will return in glory. But he came first in humility. His glory was veiled. Here we see, we see a hint, a preview as to what he will be like when he returns. Not only do we see a hint, though, and a preview of his glory, we see a hint and a preview of ours, of our own glory when he returns. Now that might sound initially wrong. It might sound like, no, no, we can't have the glory that Jesus has when he returns. That, that's not for us. But listen to the words of John, who was there. Listen to the words of John in 1 John 3, 2. John was there to see this. And in 1 John 3, 2, he writes, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. When he appears, we will see him as he is. We will see him in this way, in his glory. And in that moment, we will be like him. Paul says in Philippians that our lowly bodies will be transformed to be like his glorious body. And so this is not just a preview of his glory when he returns. It's a preview of our glory that we will share with him. Not that we will share authority on the same level as he does or glory on the same level, but our glory will be like his. We will be transformed to be like him because we shall see him as he is on that day. And so this transfiguration is a preview of the glory that Jesus will display And of some of that glory rubbing off on us on the day that he returns. And so we see the display of his glory, but we also see the announcement of his glory in verse 7. The announcement of his glory. And so in verse 7, as Jesus is transfigured in glory before them and shining, verse 7 says, A cloud overshadowed them, 
And then a voice, a voice came out of the cloud and said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is one of only three times when God spoke audibly during the life of Jesus. Three times. Do you remember the other two? God speaks audibly only three times in the life of Jesus. You might be able to remember one. I'd be very surprised if you remembered both the other two. One came at actually at the beginning of this book of Mark, Jesus' baptism. Remember? And there God says, as Jesus comes up out of the water, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Right? God speaks from heaven and people actually hear it. The other instance was in John chapter 12, where Jesus says with a crowd around him, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And it says, Then a voice came from heaven and said, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. And in in that passage, it says, People thought it was thunder. Some people thought an angel had spoke to him. There was a question as to what had just happened. But that was God's voice, it says, coming from heaven. And then there's here. And in this instance, God speaks from heaven audibly for only three people. It's only for three people to hear. For Peter, James, and John. Can you imagine what that must have been like for them? You see the transfigured Savior, speaking with Moses and Elijah, but then you hear the voice of God thundering from heaven. What must it have been like to hear the voice of God come from the sky? And notice what God said. Notice what he said to them. He's speaking to Peter, James, and John, and he says, this is my beloved son. Listen. Listen to him. He's saying it to all of us today. Listen to him. One of the implications of this is that Jesus is the only way to the Father. Whoever does not listen to him is in disobedience to God the Father. Whoever rejects the Son rejects the Father also. Now that Jesus has come, it is no longer... It is no longer enough simply to relate to God. Now God has ordained that anyone who wishes to come to him, to be right with him, must do so through Jesus. We must come to God through Jesus. This means that all other religions that claim to have a path to God do not actually bring people to him. Any other religion... That that might sound arrogant initially. How in the world can Christians claim that they're the only ones who've got things right? It might sound arrogant, but brothers and sisters, all we are doing is believing what Jesus himself has said in his word and what God himself has said in his word. And if that is the case, if what they have said is true, then it must follow that all other religions are leading people not to God, but away from him. Away from him. Listen to what Jesus says in John 14, verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or Jesus says in Luke 10, 16, to the disciples, he says, the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And then he says, 
And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. And so what Jesus is telling us and what God is telling us through his word is that if you reject Jesus, you reject God. There is no way to God except for Jesus. And if you reject him, you are rejecting God. Jews, modern day Jews are rejecting God. Islam is rejecting God. All religions are rejecting God if they do not come to him through Jesus Christ. This is not arrogance, brothers and sisters. This is the humility to believe exactly what Jesus and what God claim in their own words. We believe what they said. And because of that, we believe that no one can be saved apart from Jesus Christ. No one can get to God apart from Christ. And so we've seen the display of his glory. We've seen the announcement of his glory. But then they come down from the mountain. In this section, I'm calling this back to life, back to reality. That's an ode to a little 90s song if you catch that reference. Verses 8 and following. Look at verse 8. It says, Suddenly they they looked around and they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Again, put yourself in the shoes of Peter, James, and John here. When God speaks, what would they have done? What would they have done? They would have averted their eyes. They would have cowered. They would have gone low. And then when God is done speaking and and the thundering kind of settles off, then they, they come back to reality. They look up and what do they find? Well, they find that everything's back to normal. It's just Jesus like they knew him before. No more Moses, no more Elijah. And so with Jesus, they begin their descent back down the mountain. Back down the mountain. Have you ever had a mountaintop experience with God? This is, this is normal for Christians, normals for believers, that, that you have every now and then, the Lord will bless us with a, a mountaintop experience with him. Perhaps you, you attend a conference. For me, it's, it's happened at a number of conferences where I, I experience a, a worship setting that, that I've never experienced before. And it led me to an experience of God that was so intense and, and I felt so close to God in that moment like I never had before. Or maybe for you, it's, it's been every now and then the Lord will bless you with a, a time in his word and in prayer. Where for whatever reason, that day, you just feel like you are in touch with the Lord. That you are close to him and he is close to you. So have you ever had a mountaintop experience with the Lord, with God? I think many of you will know what I'm talking about. But we always have to come back to reality, don't we? We always have to come back down off of that mountain. There are times in our lives where we will have those mountaintop experiences, those spiritual shots in the arm, and praise the Lord for them. But we have to come back down. Notice on the way back down here, the disciples are talking to Jesus about the experience. Jesus is talking with them. He he charges them not to tell anyone about it. This is just for you all until I rise from the dead. Then they began questioning to themselves, what, what was this rising from the dead? It actually says, verse 10, they kept the matter to themselves, which is really interesting for us because we actually have the, re- the recording of this in Mark, in Matthew, and in Luke. So they kept it to themselves. They did until Jesus rose from the dead, and then they started telling people. Guess what happened? 
Now we can t- now, now the, the, the ban has been lifted. Or I, I forget what they call this when a, a product is released and it, they've been keeping it a secret. They actually send it out to some reviewers, some early YouTubers or things like that. But they say, you can't say anything until the release date, right? Well, now all of a sudden, Jesus comes back from the dead. And they, they, can, they can start telling people. But notice, they, they also ask him about Elijah. Verse 11, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Now, that makes sense that they're asking about Elijah. Why? They just saw him. They, they just saw Elijah. And so they, they say, why do the scribes, Jesus, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Well, I'll tell you why the, the scribes say that. Is because those scribes know their Old Testament. And in the, the second to last verse of your Old Testaments, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, it says this. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. It's a prophecy of the Old Testament. And so the Jews who knew their scriptures were expecting a second appearance of Elijah. They were expecting Elijah to come. When's it going to happen? And once that happens, then we know we're close to this, this day of the Lord. But if you pay attention to the Gospels, Jesus explains that in Malachi there, that was actually not a prophecy about the literal return of Elijah. Even though Elijah showed up here, it's not about here. It's not about the, uh, the literal return of Elijah. It was actually fulfilled by whom? By John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the Elijah who was to come. That's what Jesus teaches his disciples in the Gospels. John the Baptist was the fulfillment of that prophecy. And as Jesus says here in verse 13, they did to him whatever they pleased. They killed him. They persecuted him. They cut off his head. John the Baptist was the fulfillment of that prophecy. But brothers and sisters, we are not meant to live on the mountaintop. Thank the Lord for mountaintop experiences with the Lord. Thank, we, we thank him for those, for spiritual shots in the arm. But we are not meant to live on the mountaintop. We are meant to live in the day-by-day, one foot in front of the other, relationship with God. And so your spiritual life cannot depend on big experiences. Your spiritual life cannot depend on big emotional experiences. And I am here to tell you, if you become a Christian whose spiritual life does not depend on those things, you become someone who is dangerous to Satan and useful to God in his kingdom. If you become a Christian whose spiritual life does not depend on emotional experiences, on your feelings, but you become what Psalm 1 calls a tree planted by streams of living water. A tree planted by streams of water is okay during the dry seasons. Why? Because it has a constant source at its roots. Of water, a constant source, so that if no rain comes for long seasons, it's still fine, it's still healthy. We need to become believers like that. We need to become believers who are consistently going back to the well of living waters, so that even in periods of life where God is not providing those emotional experiences, where we are not on an emotional high with the Lord. We still abide with him. We're still strong in him. And that, my friends, is how you become really dangerous to Satan and his desires and really useful in the kingdom. We must learn how to walk with God in the normal 
boring times of life. That is what God is looking for. He is not looking for someone who is following him when the emotions are right, but then far from him when they are not. He is looking for those who will remain close to him when things aren't going right. Peter, later in his life, actually wrote about this experience. Jesus says, keep it to yourselves, guys, until I come back from the dead. Well, Peter not just told people about it, he wrote about it in the book of 2 Peter. Let me read to you 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 16. 2 Peter 1, starting in verse 16. See if you can piece together where Peter references the transfiguration experience here. Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter is writing and saying, We're not following myths here. We're not following stories. We were there. We saw him. And then verse 17, he gets even more specific. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. We were there, we were with him, we heard it. But then watch what he says in verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention to, as a a lamp in a shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, we were there, we experienced it, but we have something that is more trustworthy than any experience. We have something that is more fully confirmed than any eyewitness account that you will ever hear. What is it? It's the word. It's the word. You might, you might read this and you might think, good for Peter and James and John. They had an amazing experience of seeing Christ in all his glory, but I've never had anything like that. I've never seen anything like that. I sure wish I could see something like that so that I could have strong faith like them. Now, Peter is saying, no, you have something better. You have something better, and it's God's word. Our experiences can be misinterpreted. God's word is here on the page, the same for every single one of us, outside of us. Our experiences can lift us to emotional highs, but God's word God's word can help ground us and put down roots so that we can be trees planted by living waters. Our experiences should never trump the truth that we find in God's word. Do you want God to speak to you? Do you wish you could hear the voice of God? Brothers and sisters, you can hear him anytime you want. Open your Bibles and begin to read. It is God's word. It is all God's word. It is God breathed, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy. And Peter tells us it is more fully confirmed and more trustworthy even than an experience like the one he and James and John had on that mountain. It's God's word. When I was growing up in church, my dad used to substitute lead singing every now and then. And it seemed like every single time he substitute lead singing, he chose the same song. 
Give me the Bible. You ever heard this song? Give me the Bible. Every single time he led singing, we got tired of it. Give me the Bible. And the chorus of that, that song says, give me the Bible, holy message shining. Thy light shall guide me in the narrow way, precept and promise, law and love combining, till night shall vanish in eternal day. Give me the Bible. If I've got a choice between experiences and the Bible, and I've got to choose one, give me the Bible. Give me God's word. Give me the anchor for my soul that is the word of God. I conclude with this. Mark Jones, in his book, Knowing Christ, says... The key to understanding the transfiguration lies in understanding its parallel in the crucifixion. There are few more beautiful contrasts, he writes, found anywhere in God's word than that between the transfiguration and the events surrounding the crucifixion. Here's what he points out. Jesus was revealed in glory on this mountain, but he was crucified in shame on the hill of Golgotha. Here, his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them, while on Golgotha, the Roman soldiers shamelessly divided his bloodied garments. Here, Moses, representing the law, and Elijah, representing the prophets, gloriously stood beside and spoke with Jesus, while on the cross, two criminals shamefully hung beside him and reviled him. On this mountain, a bright cloud overshadowed those present. On the hill of Golgotha, darkness covered the land. On this mountain, God publicly declared, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. On the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it was a Roman centurion, ironically, who testified, Truly, this was the Son of God. And finally, here... Peter says, Rabbi, it is good that we are here, but at the cross he was nowhere to be found. The transfiguration gives us a preview of Jesus' glory when he returns and our glory if we hold to our faith in Christ. But there's no glory on the last day without the shame, the suffering, the forsakenness, and the blood of the cross. The cross is what leads us to the glory that Jesus hinted at here, the glory that will be fully revealed on the last day. Here in just a few moments, we're going to spend some time in silent prayer. As we pray, we ask you to go to God, to pour your heart out to him and to respond to whatever he has just laid on your heart. He spoke to us, now we speak to him for a few moments. So we ask each one of you to do this with us so that each of us individually can respond to the Lord. And then after we respond individually in these moments of prayer, we'll come back and we'll have a time of invitation where anyone who needs to respond to God's word in a public way can do so. So let's pray for a few moments together.